Lost in His Own Museum, episode six, with Twig and Jim. I'm Twig. And I'm Jim. And this time around, we watched Christopher Nolan's 2006 movie, The Prestige, which he made in between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Yeah, he did indeed, and it's so good. It is amazing. I love this movie. Do you love this movie? Oh, I do love this movie so, so much. Uh, it's my favourite Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, I think it's probably mine as well, because I think it's the most Nolan-y Nolan movie. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's his most sort of, the, like all the all the stuff that Nolan does, is is he, like he does best in this film. I, I find. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I'll come come to this probably a bit later on as we we delve into it. I think what works so well for this, um, is the fact that because it's based on some source material. He's not allowed to stray too far off the beaten track. Like he's got creative control and he's got the reins and obviously the screenplay is is written by him and his brother and uh, you know obviously like I say it's based on on that 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 novel The Prestige by Christopher Priest. But because they've got a formula and a framework that they have to stick to, it really seems to make him work for it. Um yeah, the non-linear stuff's brilliant. I mean, that's right out of the novel, which is probably one of the reasons it appealed to him. Um, but like, when you take some of his later stuff, like Tenet, Dunkirk, and uh, even Interstellar, there's, whilst they are technically brilliant films, you can tell he's just been given carte blanche to do whatever, and like sometimes it pays off, i.e. Inception or The Dark Knight. Um, but then other times, like maybe Tenet, and possibly to a lesser extent Dunkirk doesn't. So I think it's quite good that he's got... I mean, look, Dark Knight's easily rated. I mean, it's not my favourite of his films, like I say this is, but The Dark Knight is probably the public's consensus of his best film. And I, and I think he I think he works best when he's got guidelines to stay with him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, th- th- this is... I did a little poll... Um, which we'll get into later on when we're talking. We're going to be talking about a few Christopher Nolan's movies, and this is kind of ranked the best of the like non-Batman Christopher Nolan movies, which I think is, I think is fair. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, should we do a little plot recap? Yeah, absolutely. Are you taking this one? Yeah, I'll take this one. So uh, it's the eighteen nineties in London. Um, Robert Angier, who's played by Hugh Jackman, and Alfred Borden, who's played by Christine Bale, twice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we can we can do spoilers because spoilers. <laughs> if you haven't seen this movie, um, it's it's so difficult to to talk about a Christopher Nolan movie without spoilers. So if you haven't seen this movie, um, come any further, go and have a listen to it. Um, have a listen to it. Go and have a watch of it, and then come back to us before you have a listen to this. Um, yeah, because it is just it is damn near impossible to do to do anything to do with a Christopher Nolan movie. And getting it sort of any any sort of depth and detail with it without going spoilers because there's like, you know, there's at least three major reveal plot twists in this movie. There is, but the whole the whole thing's spoiler territory, and uh, it's it's one of those films, isn't it? Which is what it's what happens when you do a non-linear movie, isn't it? <laughs> like, well, it know. is, yeah, but the the whole thing is just it's like everything's a spoiler and nothing's a spoiler at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not technically the end of the story. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's brilliant. I love it. Anyway, we're we're in the eighteen nineties. <laughs> it's uh, London in the eighteen nineties. Um, so yeah, Robert Angier played by Hugh Jackman. Cast your minds back. <laughs> Alfred Borden played by uh, Christine Bale are working as shills for a musician. Um, a musician. 
see, I knew I was we did it. Do that. We, we were just <laughs> talking, just having the, the preamble before recording, and I and I said, let's keep the plot recap quick and let's dive into you know theories and and what we love about the movie because that in turn will tell the the story of this film. And I said musicians twice, and Phil corrected me. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I knew I knew I was going to do it. Uh, they're working under the mentorship of John Cutter, who's played by Michael Caine, who's an engineer who designs like like equipment needed for for magicians. Just yeah, for and, stage magic. He's he's basically he's an effects sort of artist, isn't he? Like practical effect artist. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Um, so Angie and Borden are arguing over this uh, the, the this water tank trick, and it's Angie's wife is going to be in the tank, and Borden wants to tie. A certain type of knot that he reckons is going to look better to the crowd and it's going to hold tighter. Um, she reckons that she can slip it, uh, and so they 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 go for this because um, you know Angie and and Borden are quite good friends at this point. They've been working together for a while. Um, they go to the water tank trick one night and she gets stuck in the tank and drowns. Angie blames Borden for it, claiming that he's he's tied this different knot. Um, and she hasn't been able to slip it, and it sort of starts starts them off on a rivalry. They start their own careers in magic, um, and, and they sort of go off from there, really, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They start sabotaging each other, and it just gets a bit out of hand and gets a bit silly. Um, and so Borden's had this diary that he's been keeping the entire time, um, which Angie steals, uh, and it turns out that it's it's all encoded using a rotating substitution cipher. Um, so he's trying to find out what the keyword is. He kidnaps. Uh, Borden's sort of engineer assistant guy um, buries him alive, <laughs> and, and is... sort of bribes him, doesn't he, to get the get the keyword out of him? And yeah, sort of yeah, blackmails, I would say, rather than bribes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, blackmails, bribes. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's all all good, but it's it's like you say because this film is completely non-linear, and we're we're at that point, we're at this point, and we we jump backwards and forwards, and there's a lot of jump cuts. Yeah, after the wife's died and they've become bitter enemies, they they like you say they both go off on their their own magic careers, and Borden's playing the bars and the clubs and the the pubs and just the absolute dives of Victorian London, and. Angie has sort of gone back to Cutter and they've refined a stage act and they're doing the theatres and the town halls and it's it's like a, a visual representation of something that John Cutter's character says earlier in the film about needing to get your hands dirty in a trick. And and sort of like Christian Bale's playing these dives and they're you know, the, the clientele are absolutely just the sort of the, the dregs of eighteen nineties society that are watching him and they're there to watch him basically get shot because he's got a, a trick with a catching a bullet. Um and then Angie, who's taking on the, the mantle of the great Danton and he's <laughs> doing all this sort of like in spotlights and it's all sleight of hand stuff and bringing pigeons out of his sleeve and all, you know, exactly what you'd expect to see of a turn of the century magician. And sort of, it, like you said, that that sabotage bit sort of goes from there, because um, Angie then turns up to one of the pub performances and and puts a real bullet in the gun that's supposed to be carrying blanks and ends up shooting Borden in the hand. So he ends up losing a couple of fingers, and and sort of like and then um, Borden then gets his own back, doesn't he? Like you say, they're sabotaging each other's act. He goes to the theatre then and sabotages one of the bird tricks where he ends up sort of crushing. Um, 
uh, a lady's hand. They've got to call a, a volunteer out of the audience, and and then Borden comes up as well, and they they ruin the trick, so that they end up sort of damaging the the whole thing, and this this poor lady's hands end up getting crushed as a you know sort of an outcome of that sort of thing. So it sort of puts them. Uh, basically sort of at odds with each other again and just only fuels this bitter rivalry that they've got. Yeah, so so Borden's got this uh Borden's figured out how to do this this transported man trick, which is like the the thing that he's been he's wanted to use for ages. Um and it's finally sort of the big finale of his show. And it's it it's the central plot point really, isn't it? Is is the transported man. Yeah, because the, the Angie can't figure out how he's done it. Because um, he's absolutely determined that he hasn't used a body double, and you know Michael Caine's character's got this, yeah, got this whole thing about like it's it's he's used a double, it's the only way, um, and he's obviously looking for something a lot more complicated um, than than what's really going on, and he goes and finds Nikola Tesla um, because Borden's been messing with him and and convinced him that Tesla's built him this machine that can transport someone from one place to the other, sent him off on a wild goose chase. Which, purely coincidentally, um, Nikola Tesla has actually figured out how to do this. And uh, this is Tesla played by uh, David Bowie, who is brilliant he in is. this. He's he's just amazing. I know I mentioned um, before as well, but the fact that Nolan flew out to him personally to ask him to do it after after Bowie's agents and representatives had, had turned it down, and uh, the fact that Nolan went out and saw him personally was like, "Come on, you are the guy for this role." Bowie's agents and representatives don't know what they're talking about because the the thing is, like, I don't think that you'll find anybody weird enough for this sort of stuff that David Bowie would actually have done. And I think meeting him in person was the right call because Bowie's the sort of bloke that I think if, you know, once someone's explained the plot of this movie to him and the character that he's going to be playing, he's not going to be able to resist it. No. Um, and, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think that was that's a mistake on on the part of his agents and stuff is to turn down someone like Christopher Nolan for a, I mean you wouldn't turn him down for it now would you you know what I mean like 14 years later no but at the time he was still he was still up and coming a little bit really when you when you sort of think about it because I mean he'd done Memento Insomnia and Batman but the first Batman whilst it was a, a success it wasn't the runaway success that the Dark Knight was so the Dark the Dark Knight was his like his turning point, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Memento and Insomnia were almost sort of cult status. Yeah, exactly. But they they were they they were exactly that. They were cult. They weren't mainstream. They've become mainstream because of Batman, basically. They were sort of curios for people that they were interested in filmmaking because it was so weird and and so interesting and that sort of lot non linear storytelling and like. Um, and certain types of cinematography, and it was like, it w- there were films for 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 movie nerds, I think. Yeah, films for film lovers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I'd, yeah, to be honest, at this point in, in Christopher Nolan's career, I don't think the Prestige was was much different from that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I remember that the first time I saw Memento was, I think that was around the time that the Prestige would have been coming out, and. Uh, I was just, it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Well, when I when I first saw Memento, it was it was with you, and it was when you were crashing around at my old gaff when we had a gig. We had to set off early to get to a gig the next day, so you came and crashed over, and I remember watching it, and I wasn't overly impressed with it to be fair, and it's still not one I would 
put anywhere near the top of my my Nolan Nolan list. But that's that's probably a debate for another day. Is that? Um, because I could go down a right old rabbit hole with Memento. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the thing is, because Christopher Nolan's kind of popularised this this style of filmmaking. Yeah, this, like I said, non, non-linear, sort of back-to-front, sort of all over the shop. But at the time, of. it just wasn't really done. Like, it, you know, it it wasn't it wasn't a popular idea, and I think it was much more... I think if, you, if you'd seen Memento, like, five or six years earlier than you did... I think he'd have been a lot more impressed with it because it was like it it kind of Memento sort of opened opened a floodgate a little bit for for filmmakers to start doing this weird this more sort of strange non-linear stuff more in yeah. kind of the mainstream um yeah I think I think Memento was responsible for for a lot of sort of popularizing that idea but yeah anyway sorry we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there so we, um, we did yeah so so he goes to see nikola tesla and, and tesla's built this machine that he reckons can transport something from from one place to another yeah he's he's away though isn't he for a long time tesla takes two years building this machine and all the while angier stays in the hotel down the road doesn't he and yeah because T- tesla's sort of on the run from from edison really isn't he he wants he just kind of wants to be somewhere to do some weird experimenting things and and sort of get away from everyone. Yeah, they, they, they've got their whole sort of thing going on, haven't they? I really like how this film, complete a complete work of fiction, obviously, but brings in real-life people from from the era. It just sort of gives it a real flavour of, you know... Do, do you know what I mean? It's sort of, it's, it's sort of like just makes it feel a bit more real. Uh, the fact that, you know, you've got Edison and you've got Nikola Tesla and even... Um, I'll come to it in a in a in a short while, but the the Chinese magician that they go to see in one of the opening acts of the film is a real a real person. Yeah, I looked that up. Yeah, um, or at least char- the character's based on a real a real person that did a did a similar thing. But yeah, he's he, Angier's in Colorado Springs, and he's there for two years whilst uh, Tesla builds this machine for him and at first he's unimpressed isn't he because like they, they go into the well, they put a, a hat in the machine and then they put a cat in a hat in the machine um <laughs> and it doesn't and, appear to be doing anything but it it turns yeah. out that it's 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 duplicating, it's duplicating everything and they're ended up somewhere like somewhere else so yeah it gives them this uh it, tesla sort of gets chased out of this little little colorado town um by edison's people and he leaves the machine for uh for angia at the hotel, so at the hotel, and it, so Angie uses it, and he he figures out, like with the, with the instructions that he's been left, and he figures out that he can duplicate himself, and instead of doing the sensible thing, and duplicating himself once, and being okay with there being two of him, which yeah, it never really occurs to anybody, does it? Because we kind of we kind of glossed over this because of the way the film darts backwards and forwards, but um, when. When Cutter, Michael Caine's character, suggests that the only way Borden can be doing the original transported man trick is with a twin, with a double, and you know, sleight of hand and all that sort of stuff, Angier won't hear it. But but seeing no alternative, they go and hire a guy who has a look of him, don't they? And they dress him up to obviously it is just Hugh Jackman doubled in the film, but the idea is that it's somebody um, dressed up to to look like him to come out and be the the prestige at the uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the act sort of thing but he's not satisfied I love that with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> root <laughs> he's just an absolute pisshead yeah he goes off on that that one the the, the uh 
oh, you, you seem surprised. I've, I've been Julius Caesar. I've played Faust. Like, how difficult could it be to play the great Danton? Like, yeah. this class. Because he's a wrecker. But really, yeah, absolutely. But really clever again with the writing there. Because obviously Caesar and, and Faust are, you know, both people, characters that, you know, sort of rise to great heights and then tragically fall. Yeah, I, I never thought of it like that, but yeah, I suppose so. That's a nice little... There's a lot of stuff like that in here. Yeah, there's a lot of foreshadowing, like um, the the scene where Borden, at the start of the film, is doing the trick with the canaries and the little boy cries. And he's like, but where, where's his brother? Oh, yeah, um, you've, yeah you've killed him. And he's yeah, and he's like a clever little boy you've got there. But again, it's foreshadowing because again, massive spoiler here, folks. But um, obviously, Robert Angier has found a way to do it with real magic through science. But Borden's trick is much simpler. It's the whole Occam's razor thing, isn't it? The simplest solution uh, being the most likely one. He is just a twin, but the the two twins have decided to live one combined life, which is why throughout the film, when you see the character. Uh, different sort of moods and th- there's so many hints to it like when his wife says okay you love me today but you didn't yesterday or whatever it is she says that's one of those things i didn't understand at all when i first watched it and then you know when you when you watch it again you realize that she's probably she she's probably got a vague idea at least of what's going on here yeah absolutely and the bit where before she she unfortunately takes her own life and she's screaming and i know what you are she's figured it out yeah yeah yeah, because the whole thing about the, the when she's looking at the stumps on his fingers, so uh, the bleeding again. Like uh, it, it seems like a, it, you know, it, it's as if it just happened yesterday, and that's because it it did, like because the brother has yeah. has gone and, and done it again. Um, exactly. Yeah. And cut off his own fingers, and it, yeah, it. There's there's a lot of it's a very meta film. Like there's a lot of sort of references to the, there's a lot of references to itself. I find because. You know, th- this movie is a magic trick. Is the point? It, the 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 act structure is the same. You know, when it it's t- when Michael Caine's character is talking at the beginning about the three act structure, about the yeah, and he's like, you've got the, something normal, and, yeah, yeah, and the, the 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 pledge, and then the the turn. Is it the pledge, yeah. the turn, and then the prestige, and then the prestige, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it is exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is with this, Angie is cheating, right? Like, because what what he's doing is he's gone to huge lengths to to make this happen and to make this trick as good as it can be. But you know he's he's using he's using science, which to to me, science against this sort of the act of like of actual illusionism. You know about about sleight of hand and and distraction and that sort of stuff. What what Angie is doing is cheating, and it just doesn't occur to him. That it's that that it's as simple as Borden's doing it. No, and it's and it's because they keep saying the whole obsession, obsession. You're obsessed. Obsession's a young man's game, and it, and it is that sort of like like I say, it is the simplest explanation that that is. But he he's looking for something more. Yeah, isn't yeah, he? no, exactly. And he's it, looking for something really complicated, and it's just not there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's 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 I, I can't think of something to liken it to either in real life or in film but there will be you know put yourself in a scenario where you've been like you've built something up for however long maybe your entire life and then when you actually get it it doesn't live up to the to the height because because you've built it up more and more and more and more and more yeah there's a, there's a lot of themes to this there's a lot of, like in in that particularly in the, in the sort of final plot twist where you find out that 
because um, I didn't realise this for ages when I first watched it what I thought was happening um, was because because Borden says the thing about Tesla like it never occurred to me that he was lying about it just to mess with him what yeah. I thought he'd done was gone to Tesla and ended up with with a clone with a clone and just one and just being happy with one you know rather than him being a, a, an identical twin whereas Angie is like it, it doesn't even occur to him. Like he, the, the only thing he can think to do is just kill them over and over and over again, and commit murder slash suicide, you know, a hundred times. Um, because he does a hundred shows, and it's just ah, like the the themes it the the, the sort of themes of it I'll I'll really like because it's it's the thing about first of all yeah obviously Occam's Razor, simplest explanation is obviously the right one. Like don't overcomplicate it because. It, it you know it starts getting messy and the whole thing about getting his hands dirty and turns out you don't need to in terms of yeah. murdering people you've just got to make the sacrifice it, yeah it does absolutely and it, like you say if he goes through the machine once he can do the act because he can yeah. still be hidden up in the balcony and appear up there and the guy can go down the trap door yeah because I like the thing of him trying to do it all like really big and grandiose and is the 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 conversation that he has with Cutter, um, when he says, uh, you know, the, the problem is it was too quick. The, yeah. the audience didn't have time to see it. Like, it, it was it was too fast. And it, they don't care how it's done because they didn't really notice what was going on. You know, and Angie has got this thing, oh, no, he's a terrible magician. And Cutter says, no, no, he's a wonderful magician. He's a terrible showman. He doesn't know how to dress it up. And that's the whole thing. The entire time, Borden is the better magician here. Yeah, no, he 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 really is, isn't he? And like you say, it's. But I think I think I always take away from it that if Angier's character had just put the energy into his art, he would have been the better. Yeah, whereas he didn't. He put the energy into his obsession and his revenge, and and by, and by yeah. which time he doesn't even care about his wife. No, you know, absolutely. He's forgotten all he's become, about his wife. Yeah, he's killed. become that consumed with the the act and the trick and the show. It's like you know when when Scarlett Johansson's character, who sort of she she plays Angie's assistant, and then she's sent as a a spy and a mole to go and work for Borden, but ends up falling for him, and sort of there's this whole sort of like uh, you know whose side she really on sort of thing, but then it turns out she is really going to work with Borden, and yeah, it, it's like you say when when she makes the comment about what would your wife think? I don't care about my wife, but actually no, this whole thing started. Because you you know your your wife died at supposedly at least in your mind at the hands of this man. Because they're both they're both obsessing though. Because like when when Angie gets the machine to work, like but it's it's taken Borden ages to figure out how he did it as well. Yeah, you know and he's he's getting starting to obsess over it and like that you need to outthink him. You know like. Yeah, exactly. But that that brings us to the the main twist of the film, the big reveal at the end. Um, so Borden is is twins, as we've as we've mentioned, and in the in the novel, it's Albert and Frederick that decide to combine as one life of Alfred. It's not really explicitly said in the in the film, but in the novel, that's the explanation of it. So. It's it's Freddy. It's the one that, that generally is is seen as Fallon. Um, that is the one that becomes obsessed with with 
better in Angier. Um, the the one that's that's Alfred that's married to Sarah and has the little girl and has become the family man is kind of at peace with just doing his show. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? But but he's the one ultimately that ends up on on death row. Yeah, because this is the thing as well. I remember the I remember seeing it before and thinking, why why does he why does he care and then he doesn't and then he does. And then he doesn't, yeah. You know, like he keeps flipping backwards and forwards. And for some reason, it never occurred to me. I mean, it's so obvious now. You know, like <laughs> it was so obvious after I knew what the, what the what the plot twist was. But it's one of those films like Fight Club where, when you watch it for the first time, it doesn't jump out at you. And then when you get the reveal, you're like, oh. And then when you watch it again, it's just blatantly, obviously, in your face. Which is again successful magic trick. Yeah, like once you realise how it's done, it's like you feel so stupid because it's so obvious. Yeah, you know, like ah, oh, really? like of course that's you know, um, and I, th- I think that's great. You know, I think I think Christopher Nolan is, I think he nails that perfectly. Of like this is this movie's a magic trick. Yeah, you know, because there's lots of grandiose stuff happening. There's lots of distraction going on, and then it's simple. It's just simple, and you've built up this idea in your head of it being really complicated and. But it's not. It's like you say. It's, it's the simplest solution. So the the end of the film really um, it, it would I would summarize it as when Angier gets back from America with the cloning machine, he he reengages cutter services. They book the biggest theater in town and they do a limited hundred night engagement, hundred shows, and then he's retiring. And it 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 really is just bait, isn't it, to to lure Borden in, and then to Borden. Sort of, as as we later learn, the two brothers have been having the dialogue. One of them's like, "Just let it be. We, you know, we don't need to." But but then one, you know, that one of the brothers, he, he can't help but go and go and find out what's going on, which is exactly what Angie wants, because then obviously when Angie falls through the trap door into the into the water tank to drown. It, it's then sort of the other one realising what's happened. The Angier that's supposed to appear at the back of the theatre disappears into the night and then everyone just believes that um, obviously Borden's put the, the, the trick there and uh, put the trap there and, and let him drown so he ends up getting hanged for it. And then obviously, and then obviously um, Angier then reveals himself as Lord Cordlow which is something that comes a bit out of left field in the in the movie but in the novel it, it it's it's better explained. Um, yeah, I think that's something that could have been explained better in the movie if they'd introduced the character a bit sooner. Um, one thing, do you know one bit of trivia I didn't know, I, I didn't notice for ages because I've been trying to figure out who it is. You, the mm. guy who's like the envoy for Lord Cordlow, you know, the guy that keeps appearing at the. I don't think you ever find out what his name is. Oh, like the solicitor guy. Yeah, do you know who? Do you know who the actor is? No, go on. That's the guy that played the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh my God, so it is. <laughs> yeah, it took me ages to figure out who it was. I was like, I'm determined not to look it up because it, it seems so obvious. And it, I finally figured it out last night. That's wonderful. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah. I can see it in his face now. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's just <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's such a good film. <laughs> is it Blinking, The Blind Lookout? Yeah, I think it's my favourite Mel Brooks movie. Like... Uh, yeah, I think I think it could be mine. Um, yeah, I, I did like History of the World as well, but yeah, and, that's a good uh, one. Blazing Saddles, Blazing Saddles is really funny. Yeah, but I, there's just there's something about that. I am I am a chew, father of a sneeze. Like, <laughs> bless you. 
<laughs> Wonderful. But yeah, at the end of the film, Borden's sentenced to, to hang and the Sheriff of Rottingham turns up and <laughs> um, gives him basically the, the opportunity to let his daughter go and live with Lord Codlow, um, who will basically look after her. She'll want for nothing, as they say in the film. It's either that or she ends up in the workhouse. And so he, he signs over the um, the pledge and the turn for each of his acts, but and says until he can meet Lord Cordlow, that he won't give the prestige over. And then at the at the end of the film, Lord Cordlow comes to visit him on the on the day of his hanging, and it's revealed to be Angier, uh, and that this is how he's retired, and and so he's going to be looking after it. And so obviously Borden has a meltdown in jail, and he's like trying to get the warden. Look, that's the guy I'm supposed to have killed, and uh, obviously it, it does no good, and he ends up getting hanged. Which is uh, fair, separately though, to that. That's the thing. Why don't they know? Why don't they take any notice? Because that's like the guy's quite famous. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they should recognize him. People should recognize him. There's got to be photos of him and stuff like that in the newspapers and like. And you'd think, you'd think at the very least they'd like. They'd take a little bit of notice. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, I mean that's the thing is even if even if Fallon came forward and Borden came forward and went, look, that's the guy he's supposed to have killed. And he's like, no, th- these guys are just trying to get me get get themselves off the murder charge. Michael Caine, do you just bring Michael Caine in? And it's like, nah, actually, lads, don't know what's going on here. There's obviously been some up, but that is him. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's almost daft enough to be a plot hole. It is a little bit, yeah, um, but I mean, it's you know, it's it's picking holes in a brilliant movie, and Michael Caine's character, John Cutter, um, who's completely disillusioned, again pun intended, um, by by the whole film's events, is now the the executor of Angie's estate, and Lord Cordlow decides that he wants to buy everything that belonged to Angier, all his music gear, and Cutter tries to magic gear. sort of... Yeah. What did <laughs> I say? Music gear? Yeah, oh, yeah. goodness me. Sorry, folks. <laughs> we're, we're musicians. What can I say? I'm yeah. I'm sat here. I'm recording this in my studio, Phil's in his, and I'm, I've got the camera in front of me. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've got, you know, I've got a bass, two acoustics, an SG, a Strat in front of me. You know, it's like... Um, but, it's, it's bound to happen. It's just a harmless yeah, Freudian so, slip, it's all good. <laughs> absolutely. So Cutter is is pleading with the Sheriff of Rottingham not to um, <laughs> not to buy the transported man trick and to let him destroy it because he just doesn't want the the equipment hen- ending up in the wrong hands. But unfortunately, he um, he won't have any of it and. So Cutter decides that he's going to deliver it personally to try and appeal to Lord Cordlow's good nature. And it's there when he gets there that he realises that Lord Cordlow is actually Hugh Jackman's character, Angier, and he is the clone that got away. And basically, um, you know, sort of, he realises that he's been played. Is that what we'll call in the episode, the clone that got away? <laughs> <laughs> can be. The prestige and the clone that got away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at that point, Cutter uh, goes to Fallon, who he knows is is um, obviously been looking after the uh, the little girl in the in the meantime, and 
lets him know what's going on, and then they're able to settle the scores. Fallon reveals that he is actually the twin brother of Borden and shoots the clone Angier and then goes and gets his little girl back and, and they sort of go on and, and live happily ever after. And I, I suppose that's really a around the houses sort of a a run through of this film and because like we say it's, it's all over the shop in terms of it, it's, it's it's not a linear story or it's not told as a linear story that's that's probably the the, the best way to, to sum it up I, I adore this film Phil I absolutely I do, love it I do do you know what it's it's a top performance from from all the cast members um, the cinematography is beautiful it's beautifully edited it's, it's a very well made film I mean it, you know you wouldn't expect anything less from Christopher Nolan in general but this is you know, because this was this was quite relatively early in his career, um, as the sort of filmmaker that we know Christopher Nolan is now. You know, after these massive things like Interstellar and Inception and Tenet and Dunkirk and the and the Dark Knight trilogy, you know, this was still this was still fairly early in his sort of in his in his career to become that filmmaker. Um, yeah. And you know you've got you, you've got performances in there by obviously David Bowie, Scarlett Johansson, Rebecca Hall, um, Michael Caine, Hugh Jackman, Christine Bale. You've got Andy Serkis in there as well. Um, I think if they couldn't have got Bowie, he would have been a, a good second choice for Tesla. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That that was maybe the idea. You never know. We'll we'll, we'll never know, but. A brilliant, um, yeah, but I like you say, really, really brilliant cast. Everybody's well acted. Nobody hams it up or chews the scenery, and and the stakes feel real. And when when you're watching it, do you know one one thing I I obviously love um, about this film is like I say is just how how visual it is, um, and you know like I say the how many cues and clues along the lines there are to reveal what's really going on and, and it sort of like does the whole fight club thing about once you've seen it they're so in your face it's unreal but until you've until you know what's going on it's just completely over your head sort of a thing yeah you don't really notice the clues till the second time or the, like the first time they're just just confusing bits of throwaway dialogue and like I loved what John Nolan and Chris Nolan did with the screenplay for this because they took the core of the story and and I think they, they might have improved upon the book. So the, the difference between this and the book is that it's set um, between the present day and the 1890s. And in the, in the present day, we meet up with the great-great-granddaughter of Angier, and we meet up with the great-great-grandson of Borden. And they're trying to find out about this historical feud between the two families. And they both have, respectively, their great-great-granddad's diaries. So the two diaries that Nolan, you know, because obviously Nolan um, obviously writes into it, doesn't he, that one of the diaries gets stolen, but then the other one gets given one to read in prison. And that's how we get the two sort of narratives as it were and but in this one the these two kids these you know two i don't know how old they'll be um but the, these two great grandkids have got the two diaries and are basically sort of reading through both diaries and realizing that the truth's probably somewhere in the middle um and it's that sort of a thing and then the 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 book sort of plays out largely the same um but instead of his wife dying it actually turns out that um, the reason they get into an argument 
is and a bitter rivalry is because Angier is a is a fraud, and he's running a say he's running a seance. Okay. That Borden reveals to be a sham, and Borden only reveals it to be a sham after he's been to one of these seances to be in touch with a previous, uh, you know, a, a departed loved one, um, and then realised after the fact that it's a scam. So he then goes to expose him. So the wife, the wife never dies, and basically Borden sort of ruins his career. So that's where that that starts from. And then the whole transported man bit and the Nikola Tesla invention does it. But the Tesla machine doesn't clone them. What it does is it takes the essence from a person and puts it into a new body and then leaves a dead, lifeless shell behind. So there's no need to ever actually kill the the, the, the person that goes down the trapdoor. And so, 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 so that's something that Nolan's written into it. And and the bit that Borden actually interferes with ends up stopping the machine from working halfway through. So there's a half Angier up there and a half Angier down here. Both both are shells sort of thing. Uh, and then it sort of goes on from there. And then, then the whole Lord Codlow thing is, is brought into it again. Um, and one of the shell Angiers, we, we never find out what happens to the other one. Or initially in the in the story we don't, um, and then the other one ends up becoming terminally ill because they're essentially half a man, um, and and dying, and then sort of cut back forward to the present day, and the 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 two great grandkids go to the old um, Angier family estate, and find that the other half shell of Angier is still alive in 1995, just wasting away. Which sounds really creepy. Yeah, it does a bit. I mean, yeah, I think that that would have I'm been hard to do in a film without. I'm glad they didn't do that for the film, but doesn't that sound like? I I don't know. Just I, I can't think how you could work it in. But the whole hundred years later, he's a withered shell, still alive in a, you know, nearly two hundred years old or whatever he'd be. Yeah. So there's a bit of a fifty, I suppose. It sounds like there's a bit of kind of Dorian Gray type influence in there. Yeah, I'm, I mean it's. I've only looked up the synopsis, but I'm I'm intrigued to read it. Yeah, yeah, I might have which, a go at it. Which, which you know, is, is I think the sign of something that's good. But it sounds like a completely different story, you know, sort of like. And and I think Nolan's taken the elements of it that really, really work and turned it into this fantastic film about these two blokes having this rivalry. And I think one thing that worked really well in the film as well is that there's no clear protagonist or antagonist, is there? There's no goodie or baddie. No, I mean not at least not until the end, because this is the thing. Like, um, the this is sort of the another part of the the whole magic trick bit of it is you know like like by the end of it, it's it's not as you as it seems, it's not as you think it is, because um, you sort of root for for Angier all the way through the story, because you know the whole the whole thing about his wife getting killed, and then as it steadily moves along, you start to realise that that. Borden's not really doing anything wrong, um, and th- this rivalry's just got a little bit out of hand. And Angie's a monster by the end of it. You know, he's been all over the world. He's spent so much money just to kill someone every night for a hundred nights and put them in a in a glass box and 
Yeah, and it's like I said before, and I can't remember whether this was in the 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 sort of like the pre-show where we were just having a natter, or or whether whether I've said this in it, but it it goes back to the line that Cutter says about needing to get your hands dirty to be a good magician. Um, and Borden really embraces that, and again, it's it's visually told through the venues they're playing. Borden's in the bars and the dives, and then obviously Angie's on the the theatre stages and putting on a real performance, and you know doing all all that sort of thing. But by the end of the film, they've almost kind of reversed roles. Borden's become this sort of family man, and you know he's got the whole sort of duality sort of thing going on because obviously him and his twin brother are living the same life. And one of them is still obsessed with the show and wants to better Angier and wants to destroy him. But actually, he's just all about raising his daughter. And then, like you say, Angier's just descended into this madness. And he's become all, all consumed by it. Yeah, by this by this sort of complete obsession. And yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think by the end of it, you, you're really starting to see a, a more clear sort of good and bad thing going on because obviously I think it's more of a sympathy thing because you, you you have a lot of sympathy for for Borden because he's lost his brother um and he's been you know he's been his brother's been framed for a for a murder that he didn't commit um so I th- you know I think there's a lot of redemption stuff going on and there's yeah by the end of it there's a much clearer idea of good and bad but it, yeah it is a it is a blurry one it's uh what's your yeah. favorite bit what, like if you were to pick like a favorite, just a favorite bit of the film. Oh, um, do you know that's really, really, really hard to to say. Uh, I I love, I I just absolutely love the first time, um, Chris Bale does the transported man in the dirty little bar, and Angie's sat there in the audience, and he's just like the complete look of of bewilderment. Yeah, it's the, the music just builds like, up as well, and then it stops. Yeah, when he when he walks through the, when he throws the ball and walks through the door, it stops. Yeah, and the tension just just breaks. Like it's beautifully done that because there's, there's quite a bit of build up to that scene. You know, he's he's sitting, just sitting on his own, staring into space, and Scarjo asks him, you know, like what if he if he hurt him at the, at the show and what, what was it bad no it was the best thing i've ever seen or whatever it is he said that something like that isn't it yeah and he, he's in complete awe of his enemy yeah there's the, the tense build-up that suddenly breaks which is something that christopher nolan does really well um it reminded it me again of in the dark night doesn't it yeah it reminded me of that scene in the dark night where the the there's the the rapid scene changes and then and the the, the building music and the and then stop and the Joker walks through Good the walks evening, out the ladies yeah. and gentlemen. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. That that makes the hairs stand up on my arms. Like it's it's stunning. Yeah. Um but that yeah, that's what that reminded me of, and that's something that Christopher Nolan does beautifully, I think. Yeah, it was I think I think that that's that's gonna be one of my favourite scenes. I mean, I watched this on four K last night. My sister bought me the four K Blu ray for, for Christmas, just gone. And it obviously looks absolutely spectacular and you can really appreciate the the cinematography and the shots and just how well Christopher Nolan gorgeous. visually like yeah. makes his films. Yeah, Absolutely spectacular stuff. Well, Phil, would you believe we've netted on for three quarters of an hour about, <laughs> about this film? The, about the plot of The Prestige. It's it's such a good film. It's such. Is it going in the museum? Oh, of course it's going in the museum. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. It's getting its own wing. <laughs> yeah. uh, Christopher Nolan's entire filmography, I think, is is one for the museum. It's one of them for me. No, Nolan's filmography would go in because of who it is. If we were looking at some of the individual films, there'd be a couple of films I, I would let loose to history. Um, I, I would happily... Um, I'd be honest, I'm not sure I'd put Insomnia in. Yeah, I'm not. I wasn't a huge fan of that film. I think he was still kind of finding his feet with making like, you know, a, a normal movie after Memento. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and I definitely wouldn't put Tenet in. Watch it again. I've I've seen it twice, and it's it's good the second time. Fair enough. Yeah, watch it again. Well, <laughs> there we go. Maybe that can be a, another episode. But in regards to the Prestige. I would say, you have chosen wisely. Yep. So there we have it. So that's us talking about the prestige. Yeah. Should we see what? Uh, how how did it do on IMDb? That's that's an eight point five. It's an eight point five on IMDb. Yeah, IMDb don't work in percentage. I think it's a seventy six on Rotten Tomatoes. I know I looked at it because I know that until. Oh, what film was it? Now was it Interstellar? Until Interstellar came out, or Dunkirk, one of the two, it was Nolan's lowest rated film, which I find bizarre. Yeah, it's it's it is strange. Absolutely, just just bizarre. I I I love this film. I do love Christopher Nolan as a as a filmmaker, though. I think he he's definitely got a, a style um, that is very much much like. Um, Mr. Fincher that we talk about, or uh, Denis Villeneuve, or even Scorsese, or Cameron, or Tarantino, or you know uh, Hitchcock. You know, loads of it. He's got a style, and you recognise it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, particularly in terms of like narrative storytelling. Yeah, and you just know when you're watching a, a Christopher Nolan film, and I just think he, he is a really good filmmaker. I hope whatever he does next, he reins it in a bit. And and maybe goes a bit more back to basics. Maybe even adapt something again, because um, I know Tenet was a was a passion project for him, and I, I will give it another watch. I'm I'm not you know, it, but it, it's rare that like I came out of the cinema and you know if anybody follows my YouTube, me and Phil did a little vlog, and I gave it a seven out of ten at the time, and I think you can probably tell in the video I'm just stunned by what I've watched. And then as I've had time to to sit and digest it and think about it, it's one of them films where I just actually think there was more in it I didn't enjoy or that I took umbrage with than perhaps I did. But um, I, I will at some point sit down and give it another watch. Again, I, I can't remember who, but somebody bought me the 4K for, for Christmas. I asked for it. So I, I've got it, to, got it to watch and obviously have the, the cheeky little cinema room downstairs. So that'll be... Uh, you know, as good a good an experience as any to watch it, and yeah, I suppose I'll 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 let you know in a in a future episode what I think. But this guy is one of my my favourite filmmakers. Um, my my introduction to him was Batman Begins because I am a Batman nut, an absolute Batman nut. But you know, shortly after that, I found this film, The Prestige, that we've talked about, and then obviously Dark Knight came out. Inception was an absolute runaway hit, wasn't it? And then at that point was when we started to maybe go back, and you showed me Memento. And whilst I didn't love it, I enjoyed it enough to want to seek out 
insomnia and sort of see what bridged the gap between you know memento and batman um and then obviously i loved interstellar when that came out don't get me wrong the third act has so many problems but i did love it because i i love the whole sort of like contact-esque time travel spacey sort of um pulls at the old heartstrings type of movie uh that that's i am the demographic for that but um yeah it was very contact wasn't it yeah, it was hundred percent, hundred percent, very sort of like Carl Sagan, sort of uh, taking right out of something like that. Yeah, just, just great stuff. And then when we did our Nolan marathon up to the release of Dunkirk four years ago now, which is crazy. Um, obviously, sought out following, and following blew me away. Yeah, following's brilliant because I think is it. It's like a very first attempt. It's one that like his college film or something like his his university project yeah 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 i mean he'd done a short film um called doodlebug which is it is very weird it was the the thing about the guy being the tiny version of a guy being chased around is uh being chased around his living room by the the full-size version yeah that was that was quite strange very very bizarre but certainly showed the talents of things to come and I mean, with following as well. Obviously, it 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 is fairly linear, isn't it? But it's um, it does have bits of flashbacks and and twists and reveals and things like that. And I, I just think it's you know to say it will have been made on absolutely bugger all budget is just a, a brilliant little film. I did a I did a poll on Twitter. Um, what is the best non Batman Christopher Nolan movie? Because I thought it was a little bit unfair to include to include the, the Batman ones, but. Uh, Interstellar, weirdly enough, didn't get any love at all. Um, the choice was between Interstellar, Inception, The Prestige, and Memento. Uh, the Memento is twenty-six point three percent, thirty-one point six percent for Inception, and forty-two point one percent for The Prestige. So The Prestige certainly seems like the favourite. Absolutely, um, rightly so. It's it's a, I think, I think it's where. It's where Nolan's career had peaked at the time. Um, and I think in terms of this sort of more stripped back, less kind of massive bombastic films that he's done since, I'd pr- I prefer I'd prefer The Prestige. I can sit and watch The Prestige rather than watch Interstellar or Inception. It's my favourite film that he's done. Yeah, I think it's probably... It probably uh, is mine, yeah. And... Uh... I I I think do you know I agree I think I think he works best when he's a little bit dialed back. I think um, the fact that he's had some sort of like you know he's had to colour in the lines as it were with with this one I think has has, has helped uh, make this uh, you know and just just a really really solid film. Um, like I like Dunkirk I really enjoyed Dunkirk. Um, I, what took me out of Dunkirk was the whole. We've got a guy's story that's taking three days. We've got a guy's story that's taking three hours, and we've got somebody's story taking thirty minutes. That that took me out of it a little bit. That felt a bit too much. Yeah, I mean, it was it was Nolan trying to do a war film in his style of nonlinear style, cyclic yeah. storytelling, and it just sort of. I'd, I had this this argument with my uncle a while back because he he's like massive into war films. Um, He's got this thing where where he doesn't like the he doesn't like watching a film to be like a like an intellectual exercise. 
he wants just to be able to relax yeah. and not think about it. Um, which, you know, with war films, usually... And he hated, hated Dunkirk. Because he said it was just too complicated for, for what it is. Um, and it's just, it doesn't... I think it was it was a failed experiment. It doesn't fit the genre. Because I'm not overly keen on it. I, I appreciate it as a, as a, as a Nolan movie. Um, but it's not one that I'm, I, I was in a huge hurry to watch again. And since I... Since I saw it a second time, I'm not, I'm not in a hurry to watch it a third time. No, I have to say I've seen it twice, uh, the cinema with you, and then uh, on Blu-ray. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to rush to watch it again. Um, but, but I don't. I, I felt like I clearly enjoyed that one, whereas, like I say, maybe with 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 Tenet, I just, just couldn't get away with it. Interstellar, I, I loved. Um, and, and like I say, I know I've just said moments ago that it has its problems, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I do find that Nolan's a very personal, you know, like his his films are about sto- are about small, tight knit stories. So the thing yeah. with Dunkirk, because the because the sort of the main underlying historical event was so massive, um, it it just seemed like I I don't know, like it it seemed odd to to focus on just sort of single stories between that that happen between you know five or six people at a time i probably would have enjoyed dunkirk a whole lot more like you say i think if it had just followed one of those groups and been their story and i think if it had been named differently <laughs> do you know what i mean because it, it the thing the, the name dunkirk suggested it's about the entire event yeah but it, it's not it's not about the entire event at all you know it's it's about Three, it's about three different sort of small, tight-knit stories within the entire event. It's a, it's set against the backdrop of Dunkirk rather than it being about Dunkirk. Yeah, you certainly can't say that he's not a brave filmmaker. Oh, not at all. I mean, it, it, was, it was an incredible experiment. I just don't think it worked. <laughs> no. I mean, Inception worked, didn't it? Inception was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was another one that was a very... It was a very experimental film at the time. Um that film's what going to be 10 12 years old now and people are still talking about it and talking about the you know the, the spinning top at the end and you know it, it's parody to i, I think you know it, it, it's a really really great bit of bit of cinema is inception and the the cgi the music from hans zimmer the the acting from the cast obviously dicaprio tom hardy uh, elliot page um joseph gordon levitt so many so many fantastic talents in there, Michael Caine again, and um, yeah, I think I think that that's a real real strong film. Is that I loved Rises as well. Rises never gets any love, and I adore that film. I absolutely adore it. I think I prefer The Dark Knight, but I I do love Rises. I th- I think The Dark Knight for me is is the best Batman movie ever made. I don't know whether I just did it to death when it came out, but. I I would take Begins and Rises over The Dark Knight. And and don't get me wrong, that's not me saying, people listening at home, that I don't like The Dark Knight. I adore The Dark Knight. It is fantastic. Uh, it's an 8.5, 9 out of 10 film. But I'm just saying, I, you know, on a subjective level, enjoy 
you know, begins and rises a little bit more. It's a bit like picking a favourite Star Wars movie, isn't it? It's just like it's got to be Attack of the Clones, surely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember having this conversation with somebody in a pub a few years ago, and it was uh, he said to me like, "Oh, like okay, so rank the rank the original trilogy." So I was like, right, "Okay, so you know, from from worst to best, I'd, I'd definitely go Jedi, and then the, and then the first one, and then and it's oh, did you did you not like Return of the Jedi?" Like no, I'd love Return of the Jedi. Like I love all of them. It's just I'll, if you so if, if you have pick, to rank something, something yeah. has to come come last, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, Empire's just my favorite. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's the same with the Dark Knight trilogy because I, I love the Dark Knight. I, I love all three of them, but I think the Dark Knight rises and begins for me. That they're your second and your third is is how I'd rank yeah. from best to worst. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know? I'll be really interested to see what Christopher Nolan does next because he is one of my favorite filmmakers and. The the hype that me and you got when we had the tenet was announced, um, you know, and, and the countless conversations we've had about what do you think it's going to be about and where do you think he's going to go, and I'm I'm really interested to see what he does next. Um, you know, I I hope we get something like the Prestige again, not not you know not like a a beat for beat another magic film or whatever, but you know, some, something like of of that caliber would be fantastic for me. Because uh, I, I really don't think he's beaten it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to see him strip things down a little bit because I think something that's happened with Tenet is that is, I think Christopher Nolan is starting to become very aware that his films are going a little bit over the top, and that he's maybe peaked in terms of, you know, um, in terms of big, powerful cinematography and big, expensive, you know, big landscapes and stuff. I think. Um, I I think he's I'd I'd like to see him strip things back a little bit, and go back to your sort of your prestige, your memento, your insomnia type of film. Ones where the audience has to think, yeah, but not too much. Yeah, just just like less complicated, big noise, you know, as well, because that's the thing with Nolan is like his sound is such an important thing with him, and sometimes to his detriment. I think like if you you know watching. Uh, Watching some of his films at the cinema, I find, can be quite jarring. <laughs> Tenet was hard because it was loud, so loud. Yeah, um, it was. It was apparently mixed better in the cinema. I've not obviously not watched the the home media thing, but I've heard so many people say that the 4K and the DVD and you know the Blu-ray or even streaming it or whatever that the sound is off, and for people to be able to follow what was going on, they've had to have the subtitles on. Yeah, I've I've read that. Um... Yeah, I think I think Which that's a, that's what happens when you make a big one. bombastic movie and then you you mix, you know, sort of Dolby surround down to down to stereo 4K. Like it, it's yeah. Well, I mean, hard. the idea normally with the 4K stuff is that you get like the Dolby Atmos tracks on it and stuff like that, and you get the whole surround sound thing. I would imagine that the sound quality, in theory, should be most compromised on the DVD because it's the lowest quality. I, I think if you had access to surround sound. I think it will probably be fine, but then because you're mixing, you know, you're mixing five speakers worth of things in a, in a two, um, you, you know, yeah. you, it's a, it's a different type of stereo field. So it's you when you've got frequencies mixing. Sorry, it's just talking shop a little bit. When you've got like frequencies mixing together, um, where they shouldn't, you know, in places where they shouldn't be in a stereo mix, and across a stereo field, sorry, it's gonna start causing conflict. Like it's gonna, um, you, you know, you're gonna get things that don't match right, and I, I think that's. 
Yeah, that's something they maybe didn't think about. Yeah, he had to redo. I know he, he he swears blind that he didn't, but you listen to the trailers and the pre-released prologue of The Dark Knight Rises that went before Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and it's obvious that they've had to redub Bane because when you listen to Bane on it now, he just sounds like he's, I don't know, you know, a couple of clicks on the volume meter above the rest of the audio, doesn't he? Sort of like, you know, you'd be talk- everyone else is talking and then it's, oh, you think the darkness is your ally. You know, and it's like just way over the top. That was the thing. first thing I noticed when I went to see it at the cinema and that's all- I think that's what put me off because that's all I was thinking about all the way through. The first time I what, saw the bane was too loud. Was that the sound was wrong. It was just, it just didn't work because like, it, yeah, it, it was, it was too loud and it was, it was just a bit, it took, it took me out of the film. Like it took me out of the narrative a little bit. Fair enough. I I I don't I don't know what it is about that film, but I I just I love it. Um, me me and some mates, we stayed up all night. There wasn't a midnight showing of it, but there was a four a.m. showing of it or something like a four or five a.m. showing of it at the at the the IMAX Media Center in um, in Bradford, and so we stayed up all night. We got to my mate Andy's for about ten o'clock at night. Um, ordered some pizzas and some curries in, and watched Begins, watched the um, the Dark Knight, and then some some like episodes of the animated series or whatever, and then drove on to Bradford in the middle of the night, queued up, um, and there were some absolute um, brilliant people dressed up sort of like with some homemade costumes and stuff like that and it was like it was really was going like going to a little bit of like a, a premiere sort of a thing and it was like the first time i ever went and did one of these like midnight sort of or you know sort of silly release time sort of showings and absolutely was just just sort of in awe of the film like you know when i came out we were all just like in shock and just didn't know what to what to think and like it's the first time I've ever gone home, had a kip, got up, got showered, and then gone back to the cinema again to see a film. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I ended up seeing Dark Knight Rises three or four times in the cinema. I know I went with you once. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw it twice. I saw it with some lads from uni, and I went with you. I might have seen it three times. Um, it's, I think that was, the Dark Knight Rises was the first time I started I started doing that, you know, like going three or four times to see the same film in the cinema. Like, yeah. I went to see the... like. All of all the Star Wars movies that have come out, in like since you know the, in the last the, start, yeah, I've I've seen them all twice at the cinema at least. I I've only seen them all all once. I was gonna go and see Force Awakens again because I loved that movie, and then uh, I I just couldn't couldn't find the time between work and music and you know spending time with the missus and just life. And then before I knew it, it was out on on Blu-ray, but. Uh, I enjoyed the Force Awakens. We'll have to do a Star Wars yeah. episode. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think Rogue One's the strongest of the the ones that have come out over the last decade or so. Yeah. Should, should we should we do one that like everybody hates? Should we pick one that's like we can defend? Oh, don't make me watch Revenge of the Sith. I was thinking Phantom Menace. Oh. Okay, Phantom Menace. I'm I'm game for yeah. Because I, I I'm a big fan of like cheering the underdog. I like to like. I like to defend films that everybody else thinks is shit. I I do like Phantom Menace though. I tell you what though, should we save that for in a few weeks' time? We're hopefully going to be allowed to come round to each other's houses again. Yeah. Should we make that a movie night? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because we can we can watch the we can watch the prequel trilogy, or we could we could pick a couple of Star Wars movies out to watch. 
I tell you what we should watch that would be a really good companion piece with it. Have you ever seen the film Fanboys? No, no. Oh, well, it's it's a story in the set in the mid-90s, and it's quite miserable when you think about it, but it's about Star Wars Phantom Menace being announced and this group of friends that have all grown up together wanting to go and see it, and then one of the friends is diagnosed with terminal cancer and and knows that he won't make it to the release date. So they set off on this like massive week-long road trip to break into Skywalker Ranch and watch a... And, and, and steal so they can watch a like a, a test pressing of the film, and and it's the the story of of them doing that, and it's a comedy, um, you know, but it sort of obviously has its uh, has its downbeat moments, obviously because one of the lead characters is dying of cancer, but it it really really quite good for a just sort of like an indie an indie flick, but it's called Fanboys. Okay, I'll, I'll do uh, it. I reckon it'd make quite a good companion piece to that. Yeah, I'll i quite like I like watching the Family Guy ones as like a companion. Yeah, they never did the prequels though, did they? No, they didn't. I, like, I think the Cleveland show is going to do those. Um, <laughs> and did Robot Chicken do them? Uh, Robot Chicken have done all sorts of Star Wars stuff. I don't. I've never really watched much Robot Chicken, but don't they do little skits rather than like the full thing? Yeah, it's kind of like like small sketches with with like stop motion action figures. I remember they did um, a Scooby Doo one. And uh, it was brilliant because it was the the Scooby Doo guys investigating at Camp Crystal Lake, but they got the the they got a mixture of the proper voice actors and I think some of the people who played them in the film. So they had like a a reasonably authentic sort of like mystery you know solving voice cast sort of thing, and then uh, just yeah, okay, uh, them chasing after Jason Voorhees was hilarious. Yeah. We've we've descended off on a complete yeah. not a tangent there. We can do a Star Wars. Let's do a Star Wars episode at some point. But yeah, that's. I think we should. That's our sort of Christopher Nolan. A Christopher thing. Nolan Scooby Doo movie. Yeah, I'm assuming this isn't going to be the first Christopher Nolan episode that we'll do because we're both big fans and like, you know, and there's so many good movies in there that I think we should. I think we should come back. And we, talk we've about. just really we just had a chat today. I think and. Uh, and I think that's been. Hopefully, you guys at home have found that interesting. You'll have to tweet us and and let us know because we've we've been possibly a little less structured um, this time around than than perhaps uh, we have been previously. But I think if we come back to Nolan, like we were sort of saying while we were getting ready to record, we should maybe really sort of look into, like you say, the the technical side of things and look at some of the stuff that the the cinematographers do and like the the screenwriting process and really delve into what makes a Nolan film a Nolan film besides Chris Nolan. Um, I think that would be a good a good jumping off point for definitely a good topic. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we've been rambling for an absolute age, my friend. Should we do some questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. Should we have a question jingle? Question jingle. So Chris Garland said, uh, is there a film that made you really appreciate filmmaking, as in all aspects of film, shots, dialogue, story, editing, etc.? I've always loved films, but I think for me it was when I watched Escape from Alcatraz with my dad as a kid, a classic that made me change the way I've... Uh, I viewed films that viewed films going forward. Was the returning point that made um, for you that made you look at films differently? Yes, Memento. I think watching Memento <laughs> when when I was Brilliant. about seventeen, um, I'd just written my first. I drank a very good beer. <laughs> I'd just written and produced my first song um, because a mate of mine at school who now works for a, the company that did vi- the visual effects for First Man and they've won. God knows how many Oscars. 
Um, so shout out to Phil Johnson. Very proud of you, mate. If you listen to this, because you produced my first music video. Um, he wanted to do a music video, and we we I, I went and stayed over at his house for a few days, and we did a, a video for this track. And um, and by the end of the second day, we were burnt out. We were so so tired. We've been just you know doing camera shots of like a, of a poker game all day. Yeah. Um, from about seven o'clock in the morning through almost midnight. Um, but it's that thing where you know you you're really tired, but you're wide awake, like you're physically exhausted, but you can't can't sleep. This is right. I'm going to put this film on, which is directed by the same guy that did Batman Begins. Because at the time, I think that was the only one that was out. It was around the time that the Prestige came out, um, and he said, "If you fall asleep, you fall asleep. That's fine. But I'm going to put it on anyway." As someone who's like interested in the way that films work, because I'd sort of become interested in the way that films work, because we'd been filming a music video, and I didn't really know anything about that at the time, and like watching this guy working and like, and watching you know com- like the composition of camera shots and stuff like that, started to get a feel for what was going on, and and um, and I think had it sort of had a different type of um like a, a newfound respect for, for filmmakers and yeah he put he put on Memento and it was just the best thing I'd ever seen in my life I was like I remember him looking over to me at one point and saying like are you alright because you look like you you're about to fall asleep and I'm like I'm so tired but I, I just can't take my eyes off this you can't take your eyes off the film yeah it's uh, yeah so I think that to me was it certainly it made me appreciate a different type of storytelling um Particularly, but in terms of, in terms of editing and and non-linear uh, storyboarding in a movie, and then adding on top of that, sound design and camera shots, and um, you know, because w- with us just filming a music video, I was looking out for that sort of stuff, like I'd never had done before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that I think that was that was my introduction into Christopher Nolan, and it just blew me away. And that, I think that for me is the time that. The, the turning point for me where I started to look at films differently. Fair enough. Well, my mine's much much simpler. I've I've got when when I read Chris's question because uh, he, he messaged me on fairly fairly late on last night, um, and, and I said to him, I said, "I'm going to have to think about that one, buddy." Um, but I, I sort of stopped and thought, right, what what moments mean? You know, sort of do, do I look back on from watching films and do, do do they mean mean a lot to me, sort of thing? Um, and similar to Chris, watching films with my old man, a lot of my my film taste is is, is influenced from from dad. And I'm sure I've told the story before, maybe on here or on YouTube. But um, sister used to be a dancer, and mum used to take her out to rehearsals. Um, and quite often on a Saturday, me and dad would be left to our own devices, and he'd um, he'd often put on you know, films or whatever, and like I've said before, he'd show me all sorts of things I shouldn't be watching. Um, But one afternoon, he put on Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, and I remember him saying, oh, you're going to love this, and me just not being in the mood to watch it at all. But within five minutes of the opening flashback scene in Utah, where he's, you know, the train sequence and, you know, the the young Indy River Phoenix bit, um, I was hooked. And then it was just like, you know, as as I'd have probably been, I don't know, maybe seven or eight at that point, I, I would have, you know, maybe sort of been able to uh, 
been able to i would have maybe only seen like you know batman films and scooby-doo and you know like animated things and stuff like and this was one of the first films i ever saw you know that i I remember actually watching like a, a proper proper film and i just remember being absolutely sort of blown away by it and then obviously the bonding experience with my old man and you know that that's very much become a a film that means the the world to me um you know because the the father son dynamic in it um obviously and with my old man not being around anymore that that sort of really does you know sort of speak volumes to me on on so many levels um and then the the other other thing that I remember is some lads that I went to school with, uh, same lads that I went to go and do the the Dark Knight Rises trip with, um, some lads called Ross, Andy, and Lyndon, and the you know some of my oldest friends grew up together, and we we used to every other Friday night go and or, or rather we started sort of meeting up at my mate Andy's because his, his parents work nights. Um, and we basically had run of the house to ourselves and he had this massive TV and, you know, really huge sort of like one of them L-shaped sofas that just fills a room. Um, and, and, you know, we used to, the four of us would always go around and then, you know, occasionally other friends would come around as well. And after I'd been 16, 17 at the time and wasn't really that well versed in the films that I'd seen. Um, and we used to just watch all sorts. I remember one of the first nights we were there, we watched like one of the Scream movies jeepers creepers um casino right and um it's an interesting mix oh, in that God, now, yeah but it was just you know literally what what was on what was on the shelf sort of thing and in particular i can't remember what the other film was that we watched but casino was the one that stood out i to love me. casino it's obviously of, all, of, of the films i just mentioned then that is substantially by a long mile the best um you know of of the the sort of films I think it might have been Beverly Hills Cop or something like that the other one but oh, I love that movie yeah we though. we yeah great movies great movies but we 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 watched that and I just remember watching Casino and thinking wow um and and that was one of the things that sort of sent me down the the road of I really need to broaden my film horizons and when I when I then started working eighteen months later or so when we'd finished college and I didn't just you know I decided not to go on to university, um, that that's really where my sort of collecting movies habit started because I just wanted to watch everything and it was you know pre the days for you young listeners out there listening uh, where you could go onto the internet and watch anything you wanted on Netflix or yeah, you had to buy the Amazon <laughs> or. You, you actually, you know, well, Netflix existed, but you had to send off and wait a week for them to post you the DVD. And then usually when you received the DVD, the previous bastard that had rented it had used it for a coaster. So it was unwatchable anyway. Remember DVDs? <laughs> I do. I've got a room full. <laughs> remember Netflix before it was Netflix? Yeah, I remember. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Casino's a good one because that's, like, that's such an interesting film. And it's a, it's it's a really well made film, and it's beautifully shot, and it's it's like a it is Scorsese, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah it's Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah, it was the the the, the follow up uh, in the sense of it was the film they did next to Goodfellas, yeah. Um, but you know, obviously, it's got um, De Niro and, and Pesci in it, and then uh, is it Sharon Stone, James Woods as well? A long time since I've seen it, probably probably four or five years. Goodfellas is a big favorite of mine, but I think Casino is more sort of. There's more clever camera stuff going on in Casino. Goodfellas, I think, focus more yeah. on the story. Um, whereas Casino, I think by, by that point, Scorsese was starting to get 
a, bit, a little bit more experimental with his camera work and like Scorsese's he's a a fantastic film he's an incredible director time and time again about like The Departed is one of my favourite films what absolutely brilliant brilliant film um, did he, he did Wolf of Wall Street didn't he yeah the, the Wolf of Wall Street's a big favourite of mine uh, that's obviously fantastic isn't it there's just so many great Gorgeous films movie. that that guy's done um, he's, he's an absolute just heavyweight have you seen The Irishman yet? Uh, I haven't. No, I've, oh. I've bought the Criterion because I'm I'm not against streaming stuff at all. In fact, we we use it quite a lot. But do you know, it's the collector in me, and you'll appreciate this, Phil, and maybe some other listeners will as well. You've got an a, an actor or a director or a, whoever it might be. You've got a collection of films there on your shelf. Yeah, there's something about having all them in all order, yeah. and then then there's one missing. Yeah. And it's it was infuriating. And then when when Criterion, which is a, a boutique Blu-ray label for anybody that might not know, they they take films and give them the real sort of like fancy special edition treatment sort of thing. Uh, is is an oversimplification, but is what they do. Um, they they got the rights to put it out on physical media. So I just thought, well, I'll wait until that comes out, um, and I'll I'll watch it in its own, you know. Uh, in my own time sort of thing but i've yet to sit down and and, and watch it i was was talking to our our pal ruben uh about it our our fellow band member um and yeah i've still not managed to, to sit down and watch it but it's like a three and a half hour film it's it? quite it is a long it's film just, it's one of them where I'm, I'm not doing it in chunks i'm committing a day to yeah it's it. fair yeah it's, it's a whole evening like it's you know i'm looking forward to it though so Chris, hopefully, mate, that um, that little bit of a bit of a natter answers your question. And thank you so much, mate, for listening, supporting us, and for your brilliant questions as always. Uh, talking of brilliant questions and and valued listeners, we move on to our next question from Will. We've got a few questions from Will because he's been a legend again. Um, he has what a champ, Will, mate. Which is nice which is the best? Because we've we've talked sort of talked about this before. Like, which is the best video game movie? And if you can make a game into a movie, which would it be? Um, my favorite video game movie currently, actually, do you know, I, I really enjoy the Tomb Raider remake. Yeah, I do, and all. Uh, that's that's great. Um, Resident Evil series, obviously. But... It is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, more or less, but still. But uh, what was that about Resident Evil? Sorry, I, I like the Resident Evil series. I like, I love all of them. Um, I don't mind them at all, to be fair. Uh, I've not played the game, so I can't talk about how faithful they are to the, the the source material or whatever but i uh, i i went with uh, years ago i think it was whichever one set in the prison um i went with some some mates to go and see that and right enjoyed it It was one of the first blu-rays i ever bought as well but uh, i quite like the i, I quite like the tomb the the um sort of i say original i don't know how original it is but the lara croft tomb raider movies they had lara angelina jolie as lara croft yeah, well, they are like called Lara Croft Tomb Raider, aren't they? So. Yeah, I think I do prefer the Alicia, the Alicia Vikander one, but uh, I, I certainly did. I, I, I like for what they are. The, the Jolie ones just coming out of the nineties, you know, like the oh yeah, they, they are just like you say, they're they're just straight out of the nineties, stereotypical nineties action movie. That had been sort of at her sort of peak, wouldn't it? Um, Two thousand and one, that one came out. Yeah, so it had been. I've been right when she did Bone Collector and Taking Lives, and you know when I know she still gets cast in stuff now, but you know it was probably about the time where she was, like, say, peak popularity. 
sort of thing, wouldn't it? That sort of thing. Yeah, Jeff Foster is a director, certainly. <laughs> I, I mentioned it on a on an episode previous, um, Will, about a video game. Um, but obviously, we're getting Uncharted. That's one that I wanted. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see where that goes. My my big one would be Broken Sword. Um, it was an old PC game. I think one of them came out on the PlayStation, uh, but primarily an old PC game. And it's kind of like a, you know, a, a what do you call it? A, oh, what am I on about? Like like an Indiana Jones treasure hunting sort of a solve the puzzle national treasure esque sort of that kind of an adventure sort of thing. Um, and you got the guy George Stobart who's a He's basically just meant to be a bit of an everyman, and then his 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 sort of fiance is uh, an investigative journalist, and they sort of end up getting involved in these adventures where the the bad guys have stolen the ancient artifact of whatever it is, or they're going to do whatever. And they they're like, um, do you remember the type of games where you like used to like uh, click and point, and you had to click on like items on the screen, and you know, or, like you'd be in a room and you had to like solve the puzzles and stuff like that, and that they, they they were that sort of sort of games um and i absolutely adored them but i think it would translate well to a you know like a, an action movie maybe a series it's funny that because um, me and ruben were talking about la noir about that about yeah. the possibility of that being because the thing is with la noir it's kind of like like the, the game's built on on like noir 50s cop movie cliches anyway so it's kind yeah. it's kind of like that Ellie Noir's like been to the cliche factory and come back again, um, yeah. which I think would make for a really interesting movie because it would be like, it it would be like the entire idea of noir of like a fifties noir cop dramas, all sort of rolled into into one big giant, which I, I suppose is kind of, uh, you know, if you if you look at the cop dramas as the same as like the private detective dramas, of that sort of noir cliche. I suppose that's basically what Edward Norton's just done with with Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah, I suppose suppose it is in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I've not seen that yet. I've seen the trailers, mind you. It is good, but it, it's it's just a noir movie. It's just a it's just a tribute to yeah. noir. You know, it's just 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 a, the, the same way that like a tip of the, hat. the same way that like Unforgiven's a tribute to spaghetti westerns in a neo western style. It's yeah, oh, Unforgiven's a brilliant Clint Eastwood movie. It is that, and yeah. uh, this is coming from somebody who's not really a western fan. Um, I mean, I do like the Clint Eastwood westerns. You know, the uh, the the Dollars trilogy is brilliant and stuff. But um, yeah, anyway, Will, um, to, to answer your your other your first part of that question, um, my favourite video game movies at the moment. Um, I really enjoyed the Sonic the Hedgehog that came out last. year. I was year. just going to say, did you see that? Because um, I haven't seen that yet. It's brilliant. Um, I, I I really really liked it. But I think my favourite's got to be Pokemon the first movie. Okay. Yeah, I always forget Pokemon was a game before it was a TV show. Yeah. So I, w- I would say the, the, the Pokemon anime. Um, let's have a look. So what what was Will's next question? Was it a daft one? Um, oh, because the, there was the what uh, what would you like to see turn into a, into a game? Uh, sorry, into a movie. And I'll, I'll finish with this one just because I, I have said it before, but I, I want to see them do Assassin's Creed properly. Yeah. It needs to be done properly because the the fastbender ones obviously no. Oh, it's awful! Really, it? It's such a shame. It was it was a real waste of a good of a good movie. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, who would win in a fight, Mister Rogers or Bob Ross? Mister Rogers, defend. <laughs> um, exhibit A, 
the ultimate showdown of Ultimate Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> you don't need a better. I don't know if anybody remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember that or not, folks. But that was probably about fifteen years ago on the internet, and it was a, a, a flash animated music video with a like a really bad MIDI song about all sorts of celebrities and characters from pop culture battling each other in a big city brawl and Mr. Rogers. It was like epic rap battles of history before it was epic rap battles of history. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. It was, you know, it was what was it something like um you know um something, I can't remember the the line but the the the, the, the run up to it but the last line of the song is and, and the winner was Mr. Rogers in a bloodstained sweater. So if you can take if you can take on Batman and Godzilla, then he's he's having Bob Ross. Yeah, it was always like really daft ones, wasn't it? It was always like Hitler versus like Steven Seagal from the nineties or something. <laughs> you know. but yeah, but that that one's like the the collective rap where it's oh, it's brilliant. I would would recommend you go and go and hunt that down. Do you remember the website Newgrounds that used to have all the Flash games? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, like yeah. that. Yeah, it was it was on there. Um, but yeah, that that's my. Um, my argument. Uh, didn't Bob Ross actually serve in the military, though? He was. Bob Ross was in the army. Yeah. So was Mister. Did Mister. Rogers serve at all? Would he have been in the? Would he have been maybe in the Second World War? Given the sort of, cause he was an old man in the seventies and eighties. Was Mister. Rogers really man? in the military? The truth behind. Sorry, let's. He registered for the draft in nineteen forty-eight, but was never. Never called upon. Was he ever a military a Navy SEAL or a military sniper? What? Okay. I think this is a conspiracy theory. I can just see though, Mister Rogers there, just sort of like uh, sniper, sniper rifle, sort of just looking, you know, through the crosshairs at his target, going, "It's not going to be a nice day in your neighbourhood." See, my uh, uh, this is kind of like uh, that, that's that's knackered my my logic on it a little bit because my my thing, I'll, I'll give this a bit of thought, and my thing was that um, that they're, they're both really nice people for different reasons. I reckon Bob Ross yeah. is like Bob Ross is in his own little. Little safe world, right? And like, and he's nice because it's because he doesn't have to not be. Do you know what I mean? Um, whereas I think Mister Rogers, because I, I kind of like I like to think of myself as quite a nice person. Like, uh, but I I try and be a nice person because he's not really, folks. <laughs> like, yeah, well, you, you know me better than anybody. <laughs> I try and be a nice person because um, mostly because horrible people really annoy me. Yeah, and I, and you know, like I think, I think Mister Rogers has been through some, through through some shit. You know, he's been through something nasty that made, that's made him get really, kind of develop this real, this real hatred for for horrible people. And the only way that you can combat it is by being nice, right? So I reckon. So he yeah he's doing it because he's like you say because he's he's witnessed something and he doesn't ever want to put that on the world. So he's yeah. I reckon Bob Ross is. Is a nice person in his own little world, and I think, in, I think in a fight, if if you put him up against, um, up against Mister Rogers, I think he'd bottle it. I think Mister Rogers would knock him out with one punch, and then, and then get it's too poor sweet old, man. and then get him up off the ground. And well, Bob Ross is dead, isn't he? They're both dead. They're, are they both dead? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I think I think Mister Rogers would knock Bob Ross out in a single punch. And then would pick him up off the ground and apologise profusely to him. But I don't think he'd shy away from a fight, and I think Bob Ross would. So that's my that's my logic on that. Fair enough. 
which movie do you think is the scariest? Okay. Um, so for me, I've seen that many horror movies, um, and to be honest, Will, I, I love them, but they don't unnerve me. But I'm just sort of thinking of a few things that have, have stuck with me. Um, so that the films might not necessarily be great, but I'm just going to quote a few scenes. Um, so in Insidious 2, which is a film that came out 2013-ish, um, there's a... It, well, in Insidious 1, to set the background, the, the main ghost that's haunting the family is that of an old woman in a black dress with a veil over her face, and she's horrible looking is this this the thing like the thing of nightmares and quite creepy in the first film but in the second film we learn that it's actually not an old woman but is the ghost of a man that was a serial killer that used to dress up as this old woman to kill people and and in a flashback in the second film we see this guy putting on his outfit whilst there's a, a young girl tied up screaming in terror because she realises what she's about to become a victim of, whilst we see this guy sort of full lipstick on, crooked teeth, dress on but no wig, and he's doing the eye makes, giving me shivers thinking about it because you're sort of seeing him become the monster. And that, uh, that, that terrified me, did that scene. Otherwise, a reasonably poor film, but that scene terrified me. Um... The Exorcist stands up. The Exorcist is a is a creepy film. Supposedly one of the hor- the, the scariest films ever made, isn't it? it yeah, it's it's up there. Um, and do you know? I'll be be honest. I watched The Exorcist for the first time about two months ago, um, and it was one of them where there'd been a documentary on it on Netflix, not about the actual film, but about the supposed true story that inspired. Um, you know the is it freaking and uh, William Peter uh, Blatty is it uh, to to write and, and make the film. So Laura had watched that and and I watched it with her and and we were like, should we watch The Exorcist? So we put The Exorcist on, and it was really unnerving, like really ugh, um at, at points. And I suppose that's the mark of a really really great film, isn't it? Is uh, when when you can turn around and say that actually bits of it unnerved you um and then i suppose the the last thing for me is again a, a fairly modern one um but the conjuring 2 is quite a quite a good one it, it it really does have its creepy moments but what what made it again more more creepy for me was there's a scene in it where a little girl gets possessed by the spirit of an old man and you know she's all sort of oh hello you know la 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 and then all of a sudden i'm a crusty old man and she's got all that sort of thing going on but the voice and obviously with a film you just get somebody to dub it but then what made it really scary is because the the haunting that they based it on was was the enfield haunting which is quite a famous british sort of um you know, haunting sort of thing. There's been loads of documentaries and films about it. And at the end of the the Conjuring film, over the credits, they played the real footage of this girl's interview. And she's there talking merrily away as a little girl. And then all of a sudden, this deep Cockney sort of voice comes out. Yeah, that's quite frightening. And it's like, there is no way anybody could be throwing their voice. There's no way it could be dubbed. This girl has been inhabited by the spirit of this old man. And it's absolutely terrifying. So there you go, mate. That that would be that would be my answers. I, I'm not a big horror guy, um, 
but you know, because I, I, I'm like, I don't like being scared. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not one of those like. So my answers are probably going to end up being like, you know, proper horror fans listening to this are going to be like, ah, oh, you, you know, that that's really tame or whatever. Um, but the ones that have braved watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre scared the life out of me. Um, and it, it wasn't jump scares or anything like that. It was just creepy and weird. Um, you know, like when they, it's basically the stuff that the wrong turn films were sort of trying to replicate, um, of that yeah. evil hillbilly sort of deformed inbred thing. And they, when they go back and the granddad's sitting at the, at the dinner table and he's clearly been dead for months, you know, and, and the, but they're still feeding him and oh no, nah, it's, it's horrifying. Um, there was the, there was that, there, a lot of the, the found footage, um, kind of CCTV ghosty horrors that like the the, the thing because it's obviously it's really easy to do it, um, but stuff like Paranormal Activity that actually that really does frighten me, because um, the jump scares are, are beautifully done a lot of the time. The first one's great and the third one's not too bad. My favourite Paranormal Activity was one uh, one of the spin offs that they did, and it was called the Marked Ones. Um, and that, that's, I went into it fully expecting it to be utter tosh, and actually a very, very reasonable film. The the bit that the thing that really frightened me, um, and it's it's just one of those things that like when you get a jump scare, but it's just timed perfectly, and it's it's like blood curdlingly terrifying. It's I can't remember which one it's in. It's in one of the Paranormal Activity movies, and she's sitting in the kitchen on the floor screaming at the ghost to leave her alone. And then she stops and just has a little meltdown. And then it waits a couple of seconds, and then all the drawers and cupboards fly open at the same time. And the kitchen just sort of... The kitchen yeah, sneezes. Yeah, the kitchen sort of sneezes and everything goes... Poof. And that scared the shit out of me. I think that's the second one. Is it? Yeah, that yeah. scared the shit out of me. I think that's the second one. Because the second one, it's a rich family, isn't it? And they're in a house with a swimming pool and um, stuff. Yeah, so the first three are all the same family, and it's the ghost um, haunting like the... It haunts one sister and her husband in the first one. Then it's the second sister and her family in the next one. And then the third one's like a prequel. And then from there, it sort of goes off a bit. But uh... Yeah, I think the, the other one that really scared me was Mama. I hated that, you know? Yeah, like, it wasn't... The story was crap, and it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good film, but it it was just... it it was the, It's the little tricks, you know, like, the, like, uh, like removing single frames... From the footage to make it jumpy, make the performance jittery and stuff. Yeah, they've, yeah. they've got a. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy that played her, uh, but he, he does this a lot. He's he's got Marfan syndrome. He's like uh, he's like six foot eight, and and he's really 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 tall yeah. and sort of quite quite really long limbs and yeah. big fingers and um, stuff. I'm allowed to say that because I've got Marfan syndrome, <laughs> so that's that's fine. But like I'm I'm six foot two and I've got hands like shovels, but this guy's like huge. He does. And he's he's got like the. Even just the test footage scared the life out of me because it was yeah, it was whether they they done the thing with the strobe lighting and they're taking single frames out to make it like jittery and jumpy and weird and this guy's doing all this contor- like contortionist stuff which he's actually doing 
that's practical effects like that that's do you know what it was about that film it did reasonably creep me out and i don't normally i try not to do this with horror films because you just have to go in and accept them for what they are but me and my cousin my granddad won tickets for it me me and our jess went to go and watch it in the in the cinema and we both came out of it and went right okay so at the end of the film mama takes one of the children and jumps off the cliff with her so obviously the ghost's already a ghost so that's fine but the kid's gonna splat on the beach below and be soup like so how on earth do do they explain that to the police afterwards well presumably they don't and they get charged with throwing a child off a cliff exactly and that just completely just like took me out of it and how stupid's that but yeah i remember the tagline of the the film for that was something it was something like one of those short sentence um horror stories wasn't it you can um look under the bed look in the cupboards um you know look behind you just don't look up she doesn't like to be seen yeah, so that's something like that, wasn't it? The the, the tagline for that. Yeah, that's so like proper proper horror fans are probably going to be listening to this and thinking, oh, but like, you know, what well, worse? I mean, we're not horror buffs. I mean, I, I I love horror movies, but I don't consider myself a horror buff. I'm not. No, you know, I'm I mean, I, I turned off the original Last House on the left, the Wes Craven one, because the I, I really don't want to take us down a, a really dark hole. But the, there's a there's an, a, a sexual assault in it. And it's graphic, and uh, it, I, 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 it's one of the only films I've ever turned off. Yeah, I, d- I do struggle with that, like, and like... just not, 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 not gone back to it. Um, you know, so stuff like that where it feels real. That 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 scares me, but you know, like you know, ghosts and sort of goblins and zombies and all that sort of stuff. I get a thrill from it, but I wouldn't say I'm, I'm scared by it. But um, you know, unless it's done really, really well. But um, but there you go, mate. Hopefully that that answers your question. You never know, mate. We might have to do a horror special. Yeah, maybe at some point. Maybe maybe pick something to scare the absolute uh, <laughs> life out of you. And yeah, uh, make you laugh. Be, uh, be <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so uh, with the last one we've got is 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 Ruben's big question. Um, Should we have a big question jingle? Let's have a big question jingle. Ruben's big question jingle. <laughs> So uh, Ruben says, if they were to go all the way back to Dr. No, who's your Bond and who's your Dr. No? And I did clarify this with him. He does mean as in a remake. As in a remake. Well, Ruben, I think in early October of 2021, sir, you are going to get your wish because I I think that No Time to Die is going to try and do the old Spectre-style switcheroo and Rami Malek's character is going to be some sort of Dr. No. Yeah, I reckon that's probably um, going to happen. I, I honestly don't know how to, to cast this one, to be right honest. Here we are talking about Bond again. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, I, I really like Daniel Craig. If they were going to remake it, keep Daniel Craig. I think he's a great Bond. Um, you know, um, I don't know who I'd cast as Dr. No, because last time, um, you know, obviously it's 60 years ago now, but obviously political correctness wasn't what it was um and if i'm remembering it rightly joseph wiseman was was not an asian man or of asian descent and i think it was makeup that made him sort of appear like he had that heritage um so obviously we couldn't do that and, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say i'm not really 
to au fait with with my Asian actors. Uh, I haven't seen much Asian cinema, uh, so I, I couldn't really think of anybody that I could say, oh yeah, that guy would knock it out of the park. Um, and since the character is meant to be, uh, you know, mixed race Chinese German, um, I, I couldn't really cast Doctor No to be right honest. But I do think that No Time to Die is going to invoke parts of it. I, 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 I don't know. I just I get that vibe from it. I hope they don't. I'm, I'm praying that they don't. But um, I, I get that feeling. Um, I think because it. It depends whether they wanted to go sort of young or old with him. Um, I would like to see Tom Hiddleston in that one because, I, as I was saying about the, you know, when we did the Bond special about doing something more sort of noir. Um, hmm. Keeping it, keeping it period sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be interesting. I would quite like to see John Cho from Star Trek. Okay. I th- he do- he can do scary quite well, and he can do angry quite well. Um, but he he sort of seems like he. He could do the calm psychopath thing, you know, because that's that, like Doctor No is is that you know is that sort of calm, like terrifying yeah. psycho. Um, yeah, I would I would like to see John Cho. I've got that. Fair enough. Uh, John John Cho versus versus Tom Hiddleston. It could be it could be interesting. Uh, it might be one for if we do another Bond special next season to maybe come back to on that one, mate, to be right honest. But yeah, like like I said, I, I think we're going to get that with, with no time to die. I reckon, yeah, I reckon it's likely, you know, like... So uh, yeah, that's that's all the questions. That's it from us. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. We haven't really discussed what we're going to do for the next one because um, we've had a little break with this one. We had a week off. So uh, we did. we'll have a we'll have a word about it and we'll get back to you. Um, keep an eye on our social medias and all that. Um, if you've got any questions or any feedback, give us a shout on Twitter at Own Museum Pod, um, Instagram at Own Museum Pod, or you can email us at um, Lost in His Own Museum Podcast at gmail dot com. And we have a website now. Um, we do Lost in His Own Museum dot Weebly dot com. So you can find us on that. Absolutely, you can indeed, and I think we're we're hoping as as uh, as hopefully this continues on, we're going to get to episode ten, which from Ian and Phil's calculation should take us to sort of the beginning of May. Um, we're then maybe going to take uh, a month, six weeks respite, um, and really plan out season two for you. But we're going to hope to expand um, the the format of the show um, and. You know, you, you guys are going to be instrumental in that. We we would love your feedback. What works? Uh, what what would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? Um, you know, start sending us suggestions for films. At the moment, we're picking films out of our you know own catalogs of, of films that we we have on the respective movie shelves or on Netflix or whatever. But if you want to see us talk about something, send some requests in. You know, we can get some polls going, and uh, you know, it's it's about making the show for you guys. So so what what works for you guys you let us know uh, and that's really going to help us shape season two but thank you so much for listening and for all your continued support yeah contact us on twitter hashtag michael kane was right <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah that's it from us remain indoors have a pleasant apocalypse and we'll see you next time mm-hmm.